Do please sit down. Well, let me encourage you to uh, grab for uh, this handout that you'll find uh, tucked inside the service order, I hope, uh, with an outline of uh, where we're going in the next few moments. As you grab hold of that, I need to warn you, uh, this sermon comes with a spiritual health warning. Uh, Here's the warning. Uh, Sitting through this sermon could cause serious spiritual problems. Uh, It could actually do you more harm than good to be listening uh, to this sermon. Over these past months, I've been reflecting on the danger of merely listening to the Word of God and not acting on it. Uh, Turn with me to uh, James chapter 1 and verse 22, if you will. Uh, In the Church Bibles, it's on page 1213, 1213. 1213, James chapter 1 and verse 22. Here's the spiritual health warning. James writes in chapter 1, verse 22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, I think I must have read this uh, verse uh, many times before, but it's that middle clause that has grabbed me most recently. This verse doesn't simply say, the way I think I've always read it in the past, do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. James warns that in merely listening, we may well be deceiving ourselves. I think this is a huge problem for people like us, well, like probably most of us, I don't want to put all of you into this category, but most of us would call ourselves here evangelical Christians who believe that the Bible is important. It is very easy for us to deceive ourselves when it comes to the Bible. To deceive ourselves that we are good evangelical Christian people because we have a quiet time, go to a small group and attend a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church then we can easily think that we have done what good evangelical Christians do. We have listened to the word. I remember years ago when I was working in the newspaper industry, I would always spend my Bible reading time and praying time before I went to work. And at the time I lived in a flat, I was one story up. And I can remember on one occasion that by the time I'd walked down the flight of stairs and got into my car, I had forgotten what I'd read in the Bible that morning. It hit me uh, in particular on that day, but it must have happened before then, and I'm sure it's happened since. I had read the Word, but I'd forgotten it. There was no way I was going to do what it says. I couldn't even remember what it, what it, what it said. And that's when the deception comes. You see, I had done my quiet time. I had read the Bible. But what good is that if we don't act on it? Now, the same is true as we listen to sermons. Here is the spiritual health warning. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. Merely listening to the Bible, simply filling our minds with information may lead to self-deception. And so on Sundays, uh, through this month of September, morning and evening, we're going to be thinking about how we should be changed by the Bible, transformed by the word of God, not merely hearing it, but doing what it says. Not just gaining information, but seeing transformation uh, in our lives. We're going to do that uh, on Sunday mornings by looking at uh, the book of Mark and chapter 4 and looking through uh, these parables of Jesus. So would you come with me to Mark chapter 4 where we'll spend the rest of uh, these few moments now. Mark chapter 4 is page 1006, 1006, Mark 4 
and the parable of the sower. And then as we find that passage, let me pray that we would be those who uh, do and don't just listen. Heavenly Father, we've just heard you already speak to us through your word. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do it. And so we pray that in this time uh, together now, we would be people who are determined right now to do what the Bible says, not merely to listen, but to act on it. Uh, Please do that work in us now. That will mean that as we listen, uh, we would have action as a result. And we ask it for your praise and glory and for our good. Amen. Mark chapter 4 then. Uh, Jesus told the parable of the sower in verses 1 to 8 of Mark's Gospel, but he explained what it meant in verses 14 to 20. And the explanation is wonderfully straightforward. This is one of those parts of the Bible where it's not actually very difficult to understand, it's just very difficult to live it. Jesus said in uh, the explanation, there are four types of people when it comes to the Bible, four responses when the Bible is taught. I've uh, had them listed out here on the uh, handout for us. Uh, The first one you'll see there, snatched away by Satan, verse 15. I'll read from verse 14. The farmer sows the word. Uh, Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. The word of God is remarkably powerful. Uh, We'll see that at the end of this parable and we see it again in a few weeks' time when we look at the parables in verses 26 to 32. The word of God is amazingly powerful. When it takes root in our lives, it changes and transforms people. I think of uh, Stephen Lungu. He was a terrorist. Have you heard about him? He was converted to follow Jesus Christ at the very meeting that he'd gone to blow up. He'd gone to blow up a Christian meeting and uh, as he uh, snuck into the back of the, of the tent uh, where the word of God was being preached. He heard the word of God and his life was transformed as he went down to the front of the meeting and uh, put aside his, his explosives and became a follower of Jesus Christ. His, his life completely turned upside down from that moment on. The next day he went, into, he went on to a, a, a local transport and started proclaiming the gospel that he barely understood himself. A CT stud. Now let me uh, tell you about him. I'm sure many of you know about him. Nurtured in the lap of comfort, it says on the back of this biography. Nurtured in the lap of comfort. Educated at Eton and Cambridge. The hero of the British sport-loving public. C.T. Studd, whose Cambridge career has been described as one long blaze of cricketing glory, created a stir in the secular world of his youth by renouncing wealth and position to follow Christ. Uh, You might or might not know of C.T. Studd. He gave up a massive financial inheritance to work as a poor missionary in China. He also went to India, pioneered a great spiritual work in Africa and challenged and inspired students across Britain and America into Christian service. And then on this uh, 70th anniversary of declaring uh, Britain declaring war against Nazi Germany, I think of Corrie ten Boom. As the Nazi invasion swept across Europe bent on exterminating Jews. Corrie ten Boom and her family risked everything for the sake of others and for the love of Christ, offering shelter to persecuted Jews at the risk of their own lives. Now, do you see, when it takes root, the word of God transforms men and women. It makes people into courageous and mighty people of God. 
It takes ordinary lives and makes them spectacular. We don't need to turn to these examples, do we? Many of us in the congregation know from our own experience how the word of God God has done that for us. As I looked around the congregation as we were singing that first hymn, I was uh, seeing uh, people and thinking to myself, here are people's lives who have been turned around, set on a glorious path of pursuing God's glory above everything else. It is wonderful. In the last few months, it's been thrilling to see people completely turned around by the word of God. Uh, On Tuesday during staff prayers, we were hearing of people from this congregation who over this summer have found Christ. People who've already stood up for him in their families, before their friends and in their workplaces. People who've made costly decisions, reorientated their lives, stood against the decadence of British society. The word of God is powerful when it takes root. And Satan knows that. And so he wants to snatch the word of God away before it has chance to take root in our lives. That is what he is about. And you see, that is all he needs to do to be successful in his task. Like a seed sown, before it has chance to put down roots, he wants to snatch the word away, says Jesus in verse 15. And so do you see what that means right now? Right now, as I preach and as you listen, right now and every Sunday and every time you go to your small group Bible study and every time you open your Bible to read it in your own quiet time, every time we engage with the Bible, there is a spiritual battle going on. Satan is trying to snatch the word away so that you merely listen to the word but do not do what it says. Satan does not want you and I to be transformed by the word of God. Of course, uh, the way he does this is very quiet and very subtle. We often think about Satan's activity as being you know, quite spectacular. Well, sometimes it is, but often, most of the time, it's really all very quiet. So while the sermon is being preached, he'll distract us, make our mind wander. Think about Sunday lunch, or who's going to win X Factor, or Strictly, or the business meeting that we have coming up next week. That's all he needs to do. When Satan does that work, uh, then the word is snatched away. Uh, When he doesn't uh, work that way, uh, when we manage to keep our mind on the sermon, then he'll snatch the word away right after the service. So the first thing we talk about is something quite unrelated to the sermon. The weather, the cricket, the the colour of the preacher's tie, whatever it is. I was talking about this very thing with, with someone this week and he said, it's odd how often after church over coffee we act as if the thing we've been doing for the last hour of our lives didn't happen. We don't have coffee and we don't engage, with, um, don't engage with the sermon at all. And then maybe even more subtle still, we, we do stay with the sermon, we engage with it, we may even speak about it after the service, but a little voice tells us that we can't really believe that. Or, or maybe more subtly, it's not desirable or possible to live the way the preacher has been suggesting. That's all Satan needs to do to snatch the word away. And I reckon he's quite happy if we hear the sermon, attend the Bible study, have our quiet time, but don't do what the Bible says. If he can't stop us from hearing the word of God, he'll be, he'll be quite happy if all we do is gain information and actually do nothing with it. In order for the word of God to change us, to transform us, we need to guard against Satan snatching it away. 
How can we do that? Well, uh, to aid concentration, some people find taking notes very useful and that's why we have produced uh, these sermon outlines most weeks. Not every week, but most weeks. Maybe uh, uh, taking, uh, if you don't like taking notes all the way through the sermon, maybe just jotting down the odd thing that really has struck you, underlining it both on the paper and in your mind. And then making those things a matter of prayer during the week. It would be a great way to make sure that the word of God isn't snatched away. I think we do well to talk about sermon the sermon immediately after the service. Perhaps we can comment on the things we've been challenged by, the truths that we've, that we've been encouraged by. Tell others what we plan to do as a result of what we've heard this morning. Later in the week, in our small groups, we could chase up the application of sermons and keep each other accountable. As we talked about this as a staff team this week, we thought it might be useful to, to tell each other what we learned from our Bible reading each month, each, each month, each morning. Golly, that was a Freudian slip there. I do read the Bible more than once a month in the mornings, you'll be pleased to know. You see, it doesn't matter how we do it, but let's be determined to stop the word of God being snatched away by Satan. The second response that Jesus warns us of uh, is parched by persecution, verse 16. Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Uh, This is really very striking. An excited first response need not be a genuine response. Let me say that again. An excited first response need not be a genuine response. Do you see verse 16? The word of God can be received with great joy and still not be acted upon. See, as I read these verses, I can think of a number of people for whom this has been the case. I think of a man I met when I worked in London. He was so excited when he first heard the gospel message. It was, to use his own words, what I've been looking for all my life. He wanted to be a Christian. But at work, when his colleagues gave him a hard time and when he was ridiculed by his mates, he gave up following Christ. Isn't that verse 17? See, it happens with people who've been Christian for a long time as well. I hold my hand up and say, I can think of times in my own life when I've been challenged to stand up for Christ in a very specific way. But when I carry it through and I get a hard time for it, I find myself quietly retreating, looking for a quiet life, no longer standing for the thing that I've been challenged to stand for. Trouble and persecution scorch the word of God. Now listen to what uh, Craig uh, Blomberg says on this. He's writing to an American uh, situation, but I think it translates uh, easily for us. He says, We know very little of intense trouble and persecution because of the word in contemporary America, uh, and what little we do know about, we often avoid by silence. Yet as we speak this morning, Christians are being martyred in Sudan, Iran, China, and various other countries around the world. Children are being sold into slavery. Christians are meeting secretly for fear of imprisonment or execution. In certain Latin American countries, those who speak out against totalitarian regimes simply disappear, presumably imprisoned or assassinated. In the 20th century, there were more martyrs for the Christian faith worldwide than in all 19 previous centuries of the church in history combined. And as America becomes increasingly post-Christian, we will see more overt persecution. 
Those friends of mine who are active in sharing their faith and trying to take a stand for ethical behaviour in secular companies in the cutthroat of an unethical workplaces of multinational corporations can attest to the attempts to silence them or the outright discrimination that they have often experienced. There is a time and a place to witness simply by good behaviour and a Christian worth ethic and we don't always do that well either but there, there, but there also is a time and a place to take a stand unequivocally for what we believe to be right and true according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we prepared to do that? And if not, what does it say about the genuineness of our Christian profession? See, trouble and persecution parch the word of God so that it doesn't bear fruit. It's remarkable how that happens here in Britain when the persecution we receive is so insignificant compared to the Christians in other parts of the world. Earlier in the year I heard Bishop Ben Kwashi of northern Nigeria speak of the remarkable growth in the church in Nigeria and the incredible persecution they are suffering. He said that when you go to the church in his part of the world, on the way to church you will have stones thrown at you and when you get to church the first thing you have to do is clean the human excrement off the seats that has been left there by your opponents. He spoke of Christians being killed and churches being burned. And yet... The word of God is scorched here in Britain when somebody snubs us or or when our precious careers are threatened. I wonder if it's because here in the West we think that being a Christian ought to make life easier and more comfortable. I wonder if we haven't really taken to heart the words of Jesus. He said to his disciples, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And of course the Apostle Paul wrote, if anyone wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. Persecution and trouble is part of following Jesus. Some things that Jesus commands us to do will bring trouble and persecution in this life. Think of a young Christian man in his 20s who was challenged by an unethical practice at work. He he was challenged at a Bible study group that he ought to stand up to something and change something that he was doing at work. He did stand up and he wouldn't be involved in it anymore and it ended his career prospects with his current boss instantly. Stand up for Jesus and we will be persecuted. And things are only going to get harder, aren't they? As Britain becomes increasingly post-Christian, we will see more overt persecution. If we don't face up to that and brace ourselves for it, the Bible will have less and less impact on us. We'll hear it, but we won't do it because we don't want to have a hard time. We'll listen to the word, but we won't be transformed by it. Snatched by Satan, parched by persecution, and the third response to the word of God here, overwhelmed by the world, verse 18. See, still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Worries, wealth, wishes, they are so powerful. Uh, A young Christian artist from Zimbabwe came to stay with Caroline and I when we were uh, living in in London. He'd not been out of Africa before, uh, he unpacked his suitcase and uh, no sooner as, it, sooner as he'd done that than he went for a walk down Oxford Street, which was only about five minutes' walk from our house. Uh, he was so excited about being in London, he wanted to get out and see it. And when he came back, he was visibly shocked. And I said to him, are you okay, Russ? And he said to me, you know, I don't know how you can live the Christian life here. 
There are so many temptations, so many things to take you away from following Jesus. You see, we're so used to the world we live in. We're we're used to the constant bombardment from from advertisements. We're used to the, the overwhelming choice that is always there before us. We're used to the luxury that we live in. And it numbs us to the challenge of the Bible. The deceitfulness of wealth. The desire for other things. We desire luxury and ease. So that even before the Bible challenges us to live a life of radical commitment, we're already hardened against the word of God. The deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things chokes the word, verse 18. I've seen it with people who attend Christianity Explored. They like what they hear. They they become convinced that Jesus died for them, that he really is the son of God, that they, they know that they're sinners, that they need forgiveness. But when it comes to counting the costs, when it comes to putting Jesus before everything else, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things wins over. I see it happening in me, never mind other people, I see it happening in me. Do you relate to this? I find myself really excited and fired up by the word of God as we meet here on Sundays. I go home committed to to following Jesus wholeheartedly. And then through the week I am so easily distracted by other things, the things of this world. So easily lured into believing that the things of this world will give me satisfaction. Does that happen to you? Craig Bromberg writes this. He says, It's far easier to sing songs about surrendering all than to actually abandon a cherished affluence for the cause of Christ. So, you see, I need to keep asking myself right through the week, where is it that I will find true and lasting satisfaction? Of course, it's in knowing Jesus. But I keep thinking it's in acquiring the trinkets of life. Do you find this? I keep thinking it's having the latest gadgets, going on the exotic holidays, buying the new car, moving into the bigger house. Those are all the things that I keep thinking will actually give me satisfaction. But if I'll just stop and think about it for just five minutes, I'll realise those things are only ever brief and momentary. No sooner have we got them than we want the next thing. They don't really last. Here's where I think we need one another. Here's where we need our small groups. See, we need others around us to help us to keep the convictions and encouragements of Sundays burning bright during the week. I need you to keep telling me that there's something better than wealth and luxury. Because I keep forgetting that. Of course I know that wealth is not everything. Of course I know that. But every time I see other things... Uh, when I see adverts for things on telly, when, when I watch one of those property programmes on television, uh, when I see uh, people living the high life, I begin to dream about living that way. Uh, it's a lifestyle that looks so good and it promises so much. See what this is saying? The things of this world choke the word of God. They are, they are throttling me. They are choking me from becoming the sort of person I ought to be, the loving, joyful, peaceful patient, kind, good, faithful, self-controlled person that God wants me to be. The things of this world are choking me from becoming that. Do I believe that? Well, I certainly need you to keep telling me that every time I get lured into them. See, as we listen to the Bible then, it is, easy, it is either snatched by Satan, parched by persecution, or overwhelmed by the world. Or fourth, it is grown by God. See it there in verse 20? 
Others, other people, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. The first three responses all have one outcome. They all result in the word of God being rejected. They're not actually three responses, they're one. They all result in the same thing. They all stop the word of God from taking root in our lives. None of them result in godly transformation. But when the word of God does take root, look at the amazing result. 30, 60, 100 fold. I've got to believe this, you see, because certainly as a preacher, when I'm preaching, I'm thinking this is so weak. All I'm doing is spouting words out. It seems so pathetic, doesn't it? No, says, says Jesus. It's very powerful. 30, 60, 100 fold is the response. Now, in the first century, uh, farming in Israel, uh, a 30 fold res- return was not beyond the expectation. It was possible. A 60 fold return was much better than expected. A 100 fold return was completely beyond expectation. And so Jesus is saying the word of God can do immeasurably more than you can imagine. When it takes root in our lives, the word of God can bring about remarkable transformation. There are no limits. Obedient Christian people can live amazingly fruitful Christian lives. Under the word of God, we can become courageous and mighty people of God. Obeying the word of God, we can rise above mediocrity. We can soar to reach new heights. But I better stop because I'm sounding an awful lot like the preacher duck, aren't I? But remember the moral of the story. Listen to the word of God and do what it says. Do not merely listen to it, but do what it says. I wonder if you'll join me in being determined to take action so that the word of God takes root in our lives. The reason we've been thinking about this is over the last um, probably six months as a staff team and uh, as uh, the Vicars Council, uh, we've been thinking a lot about how much Bible people get when they come to this church. Isn't that good? But how dangerous it is to simply be getting Bible and never acting on it. Filling our mind with information and not seeing transformation in our lives. Well, look as I close. Just have a look at verse 9. See, Jesus said in verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So when the word is being preached, the question is, how do you hear? You see, coming to church at times might feel passive, but it isn't a passive thing at all. Oh yeah, I'm doing the preaching, but actually how you hear, and when I'm listening, how I hear, is very important. How do you hear the word of God? A friend of mine from a, a previous church, um, his practice was to take notes on the sermon. He would sit in the front row, invariably. He was one of the great people to preach uh, two, because he'd sit right in the front row, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, looking up, nodding and taking notes. It's fantastic. Great encouragement to a preacher. He would then pray through those notes in the afternoon, on the Sunday afternoon. And by the evening service, he would come back and tell me what he was going to do about what he'd heard in the morning. What an amazing response. That's a great way to hear, to listen. And if you're thinking, sitting there thinking, that takes a lot of time, I haven't got the time for that, let me tell you, he is a father of five. How do you hear? What can we do to make sure the word of God takes root in our lives? 
I don't know, maybe it'll work for you to take notes. It doesn't work for everybody. I don't want to become legalistic about this. Sometimes it's unhelpful to take notes. Sometimes you'll see me taking notes, sometimes not. But, but maybe it will help you to take notes and to underline action points. I'm going to do this. I've been really struck by that. I'm going to do this. I wonder if we can get into the habit of, of talking to one another after the service about the sermon, about the thing that has, has really hit us or, or really encouraged us. Again, that would be a great way to underline it so it's not snatched away. If you've not done so already, will you join a small group? Ah, it's not too late uh, to join a small group. They're all beginning again uh, in, in the next week or so. Uh, often in the small group, the sermon will be followed up and other friends will keep you accountable, keep your mind on, on the important things of this life. I wonder if as part of your daily prayer life, will you pray in specific challenges and encouragements that you've heard from the Bible? Not just being general, uh, Lord, make me more godly, but, but thinking, I've been challenged on this, I'm going to pray that through. And I want to ask you if you'll pray for us preachers here. Andrew has already mentioned taking the, the term card away. Maybe slot that in your prayer diary as well. Be praying for us that we would handle the Bible well and teach it effectively. And then will you pray for yourselves and for all of us as we gather here Sunday by Sunday, praying that we would turn up expectant and obedient, expecting to hear God speak to us through his word and obedient, ready to do whatever it says. That's our desire. That's been our prayer as we've been preparing for not just this week, for this month of thinking about the word of God transforming us and not just informing us. I don't know what we're known for as a church here. I'm told that uh, other churches, other places tell us that we're known as being a Bible-believing church. Well, okay, that's not a bad thing to be known for. But wouldn't it be better not to be known as a Bible-believing church or even a Bible-preaching church, but wouldn't it be better to be known as a Bible-obeying church? Let's pray together.